Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. When we learn to play an instrument, we're pretty much in a silo. That's how we learn. It's, it would be too much to learn to accompany and play the piano all at the same time. It's just too much. So first we have to know what we're doing at our instrument. But then the capacity to open up one's awareness to what's happening in the same room at the same time. And that could be feeling an inspired moment from one's partner, or it could be sensing that that partner's in trouble and they're rushing and they're nervous, or it could be that the balance is all off and the piano's too loud, and all these aspects of a wonderful performance has to be managed on the fly. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us for Piano Whisperer today. And thanks also to Classic Pianos for sponsoring. Today, we have with us a very special guest, Lisa Bergman. As a concert pianist, Lisa Bergman has performed everywhere from Carnegie Hall to the Pacific Rim. She specializes in the fields of collaborative piano and chamber music. She's a graduate of the Juilliard School, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and the University of Washington. As a recording artist, her discography includes six chamber music CDs and one solo CD. In 1996, Bergman and violinist Ann Christensen were selected by the United States Information Agency as music ambassadors to represent the U.S. on a seven-week tour of New Zealand, Nepal, Korea, Taiwan, Mongolia, and China. For 10 years, she served as an artist-in-residence and faculty member at the University of Washington School of Music. Bergman is a member of the Hall of Fame for the Washington State Music Teachers Association for extraordinary service, outstanding musicianship, dedication, and leadership in the state of Washington. In 2012, Bergman took the lead of King FM's Explore Music series, a two-minute adventure sharing the innermost secrets of over five centuries of classical music, peppered with anecdotes about instruments, sound, disasters, and hilarity, airing every weeknight at 6 p.m. Explore Music won the 2013 Gracie Award for Outstanding Host for Entertainment and Information. Since then, she has been added as a full-time midday announcer. King FM is Seattle's only public classical radio station and one of the longest-running classical music stations in the U.S. A passionate promoter of classical music, Bergman is also founder and artistic director of the Mostly Nordic Chamber Music Series, as well as executive director of Noise, Northwest Opera in Schools, etc. She also currently serves as classical music program advisor of the Icicle Creek Center for the Arts in Leavenworth, Washington, where she was a classical music host on Coho FM, K-O-H-O-F-M, for 10 years. Known for her quick wit and warm sense of humor, Bergman hopes to bring the joy and surprise of classical music to her listeners. Lisa, thank you so much well, for th- being here. Thank you, Ben. This is a, a treat. Well, I'm treat is all mine and ours, I assure you. So as always, I would love to learn about your early life with music, how and when you began playing, who was helpful to you along the way, your career trajectory, and and so forth. Well, where to start on that one? (laughs) Well, I was born and raised in West Seattle, Washington, on the beach, actually. My parents had 50 beautiful waterfront feet of property. Oh, wow. And my first piano teacher was also on the beach, so I would go to my lesson on foot on the tide flats (laughs) (laughs) with the clams squirting and the whole bit. And I'm an only child, so when I entered her house, I felt like I had just dropped into another world because she had seven children. And I would be 
allowed into her sanctuary of music where the door was closed, the seven kids were outside, and she would crook her finger and say, Lisa, come here. I want you to hear something. And she would play for me. And, of course, I was spellbound. And that was the just the beginning. Then things kind of uh, took shape. My father decided to take cello lessons as an adult beginner. And it wasn't long before he realized he had an in-house accompanist. That's how I got my start with that, that piece. So cool. when, and frankly, I learned a number of tricks in of the trade as a kid working with him that I used very often as an adult, mm. uh, one of which is to compensate for another musician's errors. Mm. You know, how do you keep the show on the road without having to stop mm-hmm. midstream? And those tricks I used again and again. So that then led to my early years actually at the University of Washington because I was 13, still with pigtails and knee socks, and my local West Seattle piano teacher, Mrs. Gloria Frampton, said, I've taught Lisa all I can teach her. It's time to move on. And that's how I wound up in the studio of Neil O'Done, who was new on the faculty at the University of Washington. So I would go once a week for my lesson and then play in his master classes with the college kids, which was a tremendous boost to my training and not to mention motivating. Yeah. So I then stayed at the University of Washington when it was time to enter and worked with him for five years. And I think the entire faculty at the School of Music, this would have been just would have been right at would have been in the early 70s, mid 70s. The entire faculty, it takes a village to raise a a musician and and they all had a, a role in it. And I studied with the best of the best, which then led to my graduate degree at Stony Brook University with Martin Cannon and then ending up at the Juilliard School also with Martin Cannon. Wonderful years. And then I was ready I think for anything. I was in college for nine years. Mm-hmm. And, and in New York for a long time. Yes, I was. training ground altogether. Exactly. I loved it, especially as a, a West Coast kid. You know, that was a real growing up process. Mm-hmm. But I missed the mountains and the seagulls and Puget Sound. You know, I had to come back. I knew that. Green. Yep. So I came back and, and in 1982 and I hit the ground running as a full-time accompanist. And... Boy, that floated my boat for decades because I think I was born with sort of an entrepreneurial bent. You know, I recognized that if something was going to happen, I needed to make it happen. And I needed to be saleable, presentable, marketable at any time. And I made that my business. And wow, things took off. So even at that time consciously? Oh, yeah. I knew and I learned quickly how to do the business end of things, you know, uh, bookkeeping. Yes, bookkeeping and taxes and uh, having a portfolio and uh, marketing tools, business cards, you know, the things that I did not learn in any of the three schools that I attended. (laughs) Right? Isn't that ironic? Yep. The business of music. Yeah. So, of course, I got books and read up on it, how to self-publish the whole bit. Mm -hmm. So... Well, gee, shall I just keep going? Because I love talking about all this. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, that then led to running music businesses as in nonprofits. What happened was my husband bought a computer 
Neither of us had ever had one before. And I learned how with one of those tutorials how to run a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And then the next was easy. So I reached out into the community because most of my musical colleagues weren't business savvy. They didn't know how to run something. They wanted to be hired, but they didn't know how to run it. So that's where I jumped in with both feet, which then led to an appointment at the University of Washington as an artistic – what was it called? I can't even remember. It was a part-time thing where I then reached out to yet another aspect of my training as an accompanist, which was to coach opera. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't wow. mean singing coach. That means in Europe they call it a repetiteur. So I then joined the faculty as opera coach and accompanying instructor at the University of Washington. This was in 88. And that was a wonderful 10-year stint. And I used all of my skills and new ones, old ones and new ones, to successfully negotiate that whole world of academia. Well, that came to an end because things just weren't moving fast enough for me. (laughs) And I then reached out using instead my lecturing skills, which had developed along the way. Yes, I was fluent at the keyboard, but I had to learn how to lecture well, either on a small one-to-one basis or for an entire room of people, and enjoyed a a real acceleration in that because all of a sudden – Thanks to joining the National Music Teachers Association, I was all over the Northwest speaking. Quickly, probably, given your experience. Yes, yes. And then came something interesting, which is that I love humor. And my biggest hero in the whole wide world is Victor Borga. (laughs) And I thought, Lisa, you know, maybe maybe you can just take some of those tricks and turn them into your own. Ideas of them, yeah, exactly. So that turned into uh, I called myself Victoria Borga, and I even bought a tuxedo, you know, and I looked the part with the hair and everything. And then I would, of course, crack the jokes and then make classical music even funnier from the keyboard and using his very special technique of always playing one thing through in a serious way. Yeah, super dry. Exactly. And so I then turned that lecture into a multimedia event with, because there's a lot of humor in classical music out there. And so it was a part video and part live, and I used guest artists, and it was turned into an Ed Sullivan variety show in the end. Well, so the trajectory with all these ins and outs didn't end there. So I took a job at the Icicle Creek Center for the Arts in Leavenworth, where I had become friends with Harriet Bullitt. And that was where I really had to put my business skills to test because that meant running a million-dollar budget. And I'm a music major, you know. So I learned. Same principles. Same principles, Mm -hmm. just more zeros Mm -hmm. down the bottom line. And that's when Harriet bought a small FM station in Leavenworth. She said she would never go into radio again, but she did. And she said, Lisa, I want you on the radio. I said, no, 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 Harriet. I'm a pianist. She said, no, I just want you to do this. I want you to be yourself. So for 10 years, I would go on. It was a a a two-hour-a-night program, and I would record each one and then put the cassette in my car on the way home, so I would do a self-critique for 10 years, and that's how I learned, on the job. And it was popular. 
so so popular that when my world came more or less back to Seattle, I was hired by King FM, which was a huge feather in my cap. I've pinch myself every time I walk into the station because I grew up with this this mm-hmm. music here yeah, in Seattle. Right? Yeah. Yeah, dude, yeah. Absolutely. I love the it. The journey, yeah. So were you to ask me you know, as an undergrad, Lisa, someday do you think you'll ever be on the radio? Heck no, yeah. but here I am. Yeah. And for me, it's a dream come true because I'm able then to take everything that I know and learn on any given day and repackage it and give it back to the listening audience. And if I sound enthusiastic on the air, it's because I am. I love classical music. It's contagious. Like, I can feel it in here, you know. (laughs) And one of the things I love about your story, and actually the story of everyone I've interviewed, is that if you look at the life journey from point A to Z, it's incomprehensible how you got there, right? Yeah. But the B to C to D, all those little things that you – just experience in life and just being open to those different opportunities. And as you said, putting yourself out there right. and preparing, right? Right. You do get there. Yeah. And it's exciting. And that's part of the whole point of this too is to inspire people to do it. Yeah. Give it a try at if least. You, if your heart's burning to do it. Yeah. Or even take the next step. And that leads me to my next question. Because you've had such a truly diverse, multifaceted career – you're in a position to to help young people. So one of the reasons I started the podcast was to help people realize that a music degree can go many different directions. There are options, but it really helps to hone in on what makes you so excited. And I loved learning about you because you truly are passionate about the arts and all the humanity, the joy and the anguish that is expressed through them, whether music, dance, piano, orchestra, you love all of it. And you've learned so much and you've become this great storyteller, which makes you a great and accessible teacher. So what would you say to these young artists who know they love music, maybe aren't sure what they want to do with it, but are told they cannot make a living doing it? Mm, but they can make a living doing it. I think my life story just told, proved it. So it's just a question then of finding what part of music best suits the individual. That's not to put down performance as a full-time career. There are those who are very well suited to that. Mm-hmm. Others who have a talent for teaching and sharing. Others who, like me, perform sometimes and then use our language, our spoken language as our vehicle for expression. And I agree, it's hard for a youngster to know. And have faith. Absolutely. So this is where the village comes in. And, And for example, my dad was a terrific influence for me because he was a master storyteller. Mm -hmm. So I stood there silently growing up by his side, watching him in action time and time again. He would talk to anybody on the street and out would come a great story and they'd laugh their heads off and they were friends for life. So I learned the value of that and a few of the techniques. My mother was a fantastic influence too because she she taught how to look the part. This is interesting, too, for young people to understand that if you, if you look schlumpy, mm-hmm. you, you <laughs> might be interpreted as a schlump. Yeah. Okay. So then learning to dress and behave in a manner appropriate for the situation. Mm-hmm. And then came the, the various teachers. You know, 
I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but in, even in high school, my colleagues voted me most likely to succeed. So I think there is a certain credibility issue here mm-hmm. that even youngsters can develop. Is like, how do you demonstrate that you really know what you're talking about? Yeah. Now, I'm not sure I even have the answer to that, but everyone has to feel that question in their own way. Yeah. No, you had the luxury of having wonderful training and, and yes. love. Yes. Right? And encouragement. And encouragement. And I think the love is really important, right? Because the love is the passion. Mm-hmm. And if it's an honest love, in other words, you're not working at something so that other people can admire you. You're working at something because it's so interesting to you, right? So there's that purity of motive. Yeah. I think that's super important. Very well said. Purity of motive. Yeah. And then putting on some integrity, right? Saying I've got the purity of motive, but now how do I maximize this? Yeah. Well, I can't look schlumpy. That's a new word for me. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And and, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's great. And so I know that you accumulated all this knowledge just through life experience, but your knowledge goes – way beyond who composed what and when. And so when you listen to a lot of radio announcers, and I'm not just in general, you get the, this was written then, and maybe this was what was going on in society. But when I peruse the landscape of your posts, you are crazy prolific in your content. You post about Bach's favorite foods, Gershwin and Liberace, early movie music, personal anecdotes about the classical music superstars, Venezuelan dance. So where did all this come from? Is this just wherever your interest takes you, or what is it? Yes. Well, you know, when I arrive at the station, I don't necessarily have, I'll tell you a little secret, all of that under my belt. I learn along the way, too, and the Internet is a great tool. I also have a whole shelf of reference books that I look at carefully, and I've learned how to extract just the right kernel of information and spin on that as opposed to a laundry list of, of factoids. Mm-hmm. And here That's at the true, yeah. Well, thank you. And here at the station, we are very much encouraged to tell stories. All of my colleagues do the, mm-hmm, the same sure, thing. Yep. So, you know, as I say in, in – there was one quote you made, you know, if, if I get goosebumps from a piece of music, I want my listeners to yeah. get goosebumps too. It's the same with something funny. What I do, believe it or not, and this may sound just cockamamie crazy, is that if I'm entertained or interested in something, I have a better chance of yeah. making someone else feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So I'm very careful to be authentic mm-hmm. about my enthusiasm. And that's where the credibility comes in. People say, geez, boy, how do you know all this? Well, I learn and then I share. Which brings me to your day. So tell us about a day in the radio host life of Lisa Bergman. Do you put together your own show? How do you decide what to do on a given day? And where do you go for inspiration these days? Oh, good questions. Well, part of our job here as announcers is already taken care of by our music director, mm-hmm. who, thanks to what we learn about our listeners, knows what kind of music to program at what time of day. Oh. So it's very customized. Who's listening when? Type of thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, for example, listeners don't want opera in the morning or trumpets at night. This sort of thing, to put it as a silly I example. I would have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Right? See, because in jazz, you got miles at night. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, yeah. so we we know what our listeners want, and we hear about it if we present otherwise. 
And then he takes what would be, let's say, an ideal menu for an hour, which must time out to 60 minutes, Mm -hmm. no more, no less. He has to extract time for underwriting and for these stories that we tell and so on. And what's left is music. Mm -hmm. Now, he might have a great idea of what to present in an hour, but he can't because it's too many minutes or way too few. So then he has to add a little piece, et cetera, et cetera. He does all of that for us, which is a huge advantage because that takes time. He has to also be careful that we don't repeat a piece too often and there are certain parameters for that. So when any of us comes to work, we already have the musical menu ready for us. So then it's just a matter of figuring out what we're going to say before and after the piece. And determining how much time you have to speak. That's going to be tricky. It is very tricky because let's say I get inspired and I go on a little too long about something, then I have to shorten up the other pieces in the hour so that it times out just right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how that works. And of course, in between the pieces, you know, the let's say it's a 43-minute Schubert symphony. Mm-hmm. Well, heck, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say for the next piece. Yeah. So that's how the – it's sort of a leapfrog through the hours. It sounds a little – experience helps, yeah, right? The right. first time must be – Oh, terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> actually. (laughs) Yeah. And now King FM, you have had some really fun assignments. Tell us about your Rhine River trip. Oh, that was a trip of a lifetime. It was managed by Earthbound Expeditions uh, on Bainbridge Island. They are experts. And they did the grunt work of, along with our artistic advisor here at King of Him for these things, managed to put together just the right itinerary based on what concerts we could attend off the ship. So these tickets all had to be bought long in advance. Mm -hmm. Then we invited Aloysia Friedman and John Kimura Parker, husband-wife team, Orcas Island Chamber Music Festival, to be on the ship with us as our onboard musicians. And so I would join them in the evenings, you know, up in the ship's lounge and after dinner, and all 150 people would come upstairs and we would do a concert. That is so neat. And sometimes a comedy act. I don't want I wonder who would have done that. <laughs> so then, of course, the daytime trips, we were everywhere off the ship and we had an historian who would join us for, let's say, a day because that was that historian's field of expertise, literally, which castles were those or which museums and so on. It was delightful. Food, wine, ah, 12 glorious days on the River Rhine in the footsteps of great composers. And when we got to Leipzig and went to the St. Thomas Church and heard a service with choir and orchestra and box music as he would have presented himself being working there for 20 years. So profound, right? I went to his grave afterwards, stood there and just buckled, blubbered my head off. Just thinking, you know, little <laughs> Lisa Bergman with the clam beds in West Seattle playing a little Bach Cavat, and then here I am at the grave, the foot of the, the great master. I mean, these are the things that, you know, I was almost going to blubber talking about it. That's what I would call a huge perk going on King FM Travel Club trips. Boy. That is a great story. <laughs> So now making a little transition here, I I don't recall where I saw it, but somewhere I saw a post recently with your debut painting. Honestly, (laughs) I honestly loved it. I promise I'm not saying that. I really – I looked at it and I looked at it and I said, that can't be your debut. And so you mentioned – this is the one that you mentioned was inspired by Debussy. 
Can you tell us more about the the painting and your painting life? Well, <laughs> you're going to be I feel kind of sheepish about this because I had never painted right previously and I haven't painted since. It was one of those <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's that's astounding. <laughs> well, here's what happened. I was invited to one of those uh, ladies-only sip and paint or whatever they call it. It was at a beautiful club here in West in Seattle, downtown Seattle, and a painting expert came with all the empty canvases and the paints, and she showed us where to start, and everybody just started to paint. And I have to say, many tried their best to imitate what she had done, but it was about halfway through, and I thought, this is not working for me. And somehow I managed to change the theme to a view that I see every day, which is Puget Sound and the Olympics. So because these were acrylic paints and with water and so on, you can you can change things on the fly. And that's what I was doing. I was painting from my mind's eye of a scene that I see every day. But you and, captured it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm pretty critical. <laughs> Well, it was luck of the draw, and I think that's why I haven't painted since, because I don't know how I'm going to top that. So where can they find that? I think it was a tweet. Was it a tweet? I think it was a tweet. But let's talk about how I can make that simple for them, and I'll do it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just send me a link. I'll post okay, it. Okay, all right. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, okay. So now you give workshops periodically, and you've talked about the art of accompanying, and I would love to hear you talk about that. I know this is one of your specialties. In your opinion, what is most often missed in teaching accompanying? And in your opinion, what makes a great accompanist? Mm. Let's start with the second question. What makes a great accompanist is a multitasking capacity. Mm. Because when we learn to play an instrument, we're pretty much in a silo. That's how we learn. It's, it would be too much to learn to accompany and play the piano all at the same time. It's just too much. Yeah. So first we have to know what we're doing at our instrument. But then the capacity to open up one's awareness to what's happening in the same room at the same time. And that could be feeling an inspired moment from one's partner or it could be sensing that that partner's in trouble and they're rushing and they're nervous or it could be that the balance is all off and the piano is too loud. And all these aspects of a wonderful performance has to be managed on the fly. And quite often it's the collaborative pianist, which is a better word actually. I use accompanist too, but collaborative pianist's arena. The partners in the performance may not have the tools to do it, but great chamber music uh, musicians also know how to compensate and how to enhance and how to put the final buff on a performance or, in the worst-case scenario, rescue a performance. Mm -hmm. So the worst thing that can happen as a collaborative pianist is to somehow sink in back into that silo. And I think that is so the key. So you experience like you're having individuals play at different times as opposed to this oneness that happens. Yes. And so I think that's the aspect that often is – neglected in teaching accompanying is how to have that third ear. And can you teach that? Yes. However, there's a big caveat here. After 10 years of it, obviously, there were those who came into the class better at it 
and I would ask the ones who were better at it, how did you know to do that? And the answer was always the same. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a talent. So it's not to say that others can't learn the skills, but there are those who are already aware of them and just naturally do them. So that and sight reading, because this is a career that's based on performing from printed scores. Yeah. It's rare for an accompanist to memorize a part. In fact, it's a little bit counterproductive because then that pianist is more worried about their memory than, and then than the performance. But then reading and being aware, yes. be nice to have a teacher that was saying, hey, if you're thinking 50 percent of the time, you're playing 50 percent of the time. Yes. You know, yeah. and there's that sense of needing to be present. Yes. So here's the question, and I'm, I'm not trying to stereotype, and I hope I don't get in trouble by asking this, which is women are have a reputation for being much better multitaskers than men overall. And so if you notice that women tend to make better accompanists than men, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but when you kind of review the field of accompaniment collaborators, would you say that they tend to be mostly women in those positions or are there a lot of fine men accompanists, collaborators also? Boy, you know, I never analyzed that. I think off the cuff, yes, I would I would agree that there are more successful women accompanists. But the men who do who are professional accompanists are tremendous at what they do. So I'm not sure why that is. It was just a That's point a of curiosity. Well, yeah. I just thought because most men I know were not the best multitaskers, you know. And right. Just putting that out there. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to put that on my list of n- my the next thoughts? research project. Sounds <laughs> good. So, is there anything I've missed that you'd like to share? Do you have any upcoming projects you'd like to discuss? So, something that draws my attention on a daily basis is my program, Explore Music. Mm-hmm. And the reason I find it so fascinating is because it's a chance to take one small part of classical music and expand on it in an entertaining way. Like the thrill of the trill, for example, is two notes that go one to the other and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Now, they can be played fast or slow, or they can turn into a melody like... is actually a slow trill. So it's looking at classical music, sort of stopping the action and say, wait a minute, what was that? Mm -hmm. And then expanding on it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a wonderful way to learn as opposed to a fire hydrant approach. And, you know, the whole 43-minute Schubert symphony is too much to fathom for all of us at the first go. But what makes it what it is, that's what I like to get at and to take the time to do it and do it right. And you make it so interesting. Thank you. How can people find out more about you? Thank you, Ben, for asking these great questions. I do have a website, and it's a work in progress. But now that you've asked, I'll make sure that by January 1, 2020, it will be absolutely buffed up and ready to go. And it's lisabergman.com. Nice. That's an available domain. Yes. Wow. Great. Well, that's great. And then, of course, is it king.org? Yes. Uh, King.org has a lot of content about what we all do here at this station. Mm -hmm. And that includes going out into the community and lecturing and emceeing. And And your name pops up online. So when I was doing research, I had so much available to me. So Lisa Bergman, 
if you Google that, <laughs> you get a lot. But LisaBergman.com coming yes. soon. Yes, coming soon. And then King.org. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. This has been a wonderful session. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And we could go on and on. I know we could. But thank you. This has been, I think, a wealth of information, and I think it will be super useful to people as well. And uh, so thank you. And I also do want to thank Classic Pianos for making this possible. And uh, I want to thank you, the listeners, so much. I feel privileged to be able to bring these interviews to you. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about Piano Whisperer, you can go to pianowhisperer.org. You can check out past podcasts and um, you can also find us, of course, on Spotify and Stitcher and uh, Podbean and all those major platforms. So we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.